0: Hey everybody, this is Rave Telsch, and this is episode 86 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. And it's been a while since I've recorded a new episode, so it's been a while since I've said it, but the golden rule of the podcast is the guest picks the movie and the host shuts his pie hole. And that's certainly the situation this week as we look at 1995's movie Seven, picked by this week's guest, returning guest, Joe McDonald. Now, Joe was with us before for Batman Returns, one of the most listened to episodes of this podcast, as well as uh, Necessary Roughness a little while after that. And so we've gone from superhero movie to sports comedy to a pretty dark crime film, if you're not familiar with the movie. Probably you are. It's it's a big cultural film, but it's also a movie that I never would have picked to do on this podcast for reasons that I get into when Joe and I actually talk about it. So we won't waste any more time on that. We will just go ahead and get straight into the episode as we talk with Joe McDonald this week about Seven from 1995. So, uh, it's been a while, <laughs> both, both for us talking and the podcast itself. So, how you been, man?
1: Uh, I've been doing all right. Uh, added another job since the last time we talked and uh, kind of cut back on my podcasting. So, really, I'm a born-again podcaster, and this is my rebirth back into the, uh, the internet, the interwebs, <laughs> as I like to call them.
0: Well, given given the amount of time that it's been since I've had an episode, I think I'm also a born-again podcaster. <laughs> so this is the redemption episode, of, or is it the attrition episode? We'll get into that uh, yes. a little later, I'm sure. So I, I, I got to start by asking, I mean, before we we'll get into the movie in a minute, of course, but Batman returns. Mm-hmm. Then we go to Necessary Roughness. Yes, And now you're pulling the hat trick with seven. What the hell, man? (laughs) This is the most eclectic range of movies any guest has picked.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I take great honor in that. And really the least surprising thing about me, if you know me for more than 10 seconds, this movie to me, and again, we'll, we'll get into the movie. This movie to me is one of the most perfect movies I've ever seen in my life. And by that, I mean, it is exactly what you want out of a movie. That is this type of movie. It is just tense enough. It is just funny enough. It is just scary enough. And it is just thoughtful enough to check all the boxes. I walk away from this movie and I feel like I want to watch another hour of it. I don't know what that hour is, but I want to watch it. But I'm not upset that it ends either. Like, it's just there's something about this movie from the first time that I saw it just grabbed the hold of me. And like, you shouldn't want to rewatch it. You shouldn't, I didn't, you don't. And and guess what (laughs) I want to watch. I watched it last night and guess what I want to do. I want to put it back on. Like, it, I love this movie.
0: And I, and I want to ask you about that as well. Because you told me you told me last night, you messaged me that you were revisiting it. And I'm like, hey, he's getting ahead of me because I still need to watch it again. Because uh, <laughs> it had been decades since I saw it. And then you messaged me this morning that you finished watching it. it how do you find that? So obviously you started it last night mm-hmm. and then got tired or got interrupted or whatever. And then you picked it back up this morning. How do you find watching movies like that? Cause that drives me crazy. Like I, I to me, like that's part of why I've really fallen in love mm-hmm. with television becoming long form storytelling because it's, it is long form storytelling, but it's in digestible bits. Whereas mm-hmm. to me, I need to sit down and watch a movie in its entirety. If it is a two hour movie, I need to make sure I have two hours to watch
1: it. Cause I don't want to interrupt it. Three kids, two jobs, <laughs> one wife, I watch what I can watch when I can watch it. Literally, yes. I was watching it last night. I sleep on the couch. My son comes downstairs. He says, I'm sleeping on the other couch. So he's 10. I'm not quite sure. Halfway through 7 is the best introduction to Fincher. So <laughs> I turn it off, and then I, I finish it this morning while I'm at work. I'm able to do it with movies, number one, that I've seen a bunch of times, and number two, movies that I love, because there is this kind of anticipatory, like, ooh, I can't wait to get back to it, because I know this is coming, because I know that's coming. So I'm able to do that. Now, like you said, if it was like, I don't know what's movies come out in the last five years, La La Land, never seen it, I'm not going to start it at 10 o'clock at night, because I do want to sit down and watch the whole thing. But if it's a movie that I've seen literally 100 times, I'm okay this is 2022 version of Joe. You, you do what you have to do.
0: That's fair. That's fair. I'm also hearing that we need to take up a donation for more beds for Joe's house because <laughs> half the family is sleeping on couches. So send that money to no, <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, no. I get that. I just that's yeah. I I very rarely split up a film like mm-hmm. television. I'll watch you know a couple episodes, and, and of course they'll inevitably be the. Oh God, I, I want to watch one more. And then looking at the clock going, can I manage that? But um, no, I, I, I do get that. I just was curious as to how you how you uh, felt about that. The other thing we got to talk about, the inevitable conversation, especially because you picked this movie, is how do you, and, and, and there's no right or wrong answer for this. That's part of why I keep bringing the question up uh, with multiple guests. How do you handle separating the art and the artist? Because it has obviously come to light in the last decade that Kevin Spacey is not a very good person. And it certainly helps that in this movie he plays not a very good person. But in general, how do you handle that? I'm
1: going to be honest with you. This is the first time that I've watched Kevin Spacey in a movie since the allegations. It's literally been that long. So it's really tough. I, Again, as a movie that I've seen a bunch of times, I identify the John Doe character, not Kevin Spacey. So in this film, I can separate it. Now, if I go watch a film like American Beauty, it would be harder to separate. If I go watch a movie, you know, other movies that he's done, it sounds weird. But like you said, for this specific role, I always think of him as that guy. I don't think of him as Kevin Spacey. I think of him as John Doe. So yeah, maybe the fact that he's a terrible person helps with the fact that like, oh, I'm kind of glad that what happens to him happens to him or what he does is not that surprising. But it is really hard to separate artists from their work. I've never been a Woody Allen person. Uh, I would probably never go watch any of his movies from before, not because of, of you know his issues, but maybe part of it. You know, mm-hmm. there's just not my type of movies. And there's been other actors and actresses and things of that sort. I don't avoid Weinstein production movies because of Harvey Weinstein. I watch them. And if there's a Weinstein thing, I'm like, oh, that kind of sucks. But if it's a movie I enjoy, I enjoy it. If it's a movie I don't enjoy, I don't enjoy it. And I really tried not to let somebody's behavior or politics or personal feelings get in the way of that. Because that it's hard enough to find stuff you like. Right. And, and if you do, again, you can say, I love that movie. He's a terrible person. I wish he wasn't in it. Both things can be true.
0: Yeah, and that's that's it's funny because you know I I did uh, a World of Warcraft podcast and and part of the reason that that died was because I became so disgusted by the the company that makes the game like mm-hmm. the, the the all the allegations and the lawsuits and everything and all the news that was coming to light it was like I can't support them financially mm-hmm. um, but film I, I find it's a lot that same way of like okay well you know it, it's okay to like the art and still be disgusted by the artist in a lot of cases like i, I did go through a woody allen phase so i do like some of his movies but mm-hmm. i will admit that as more and more information came to light i stopped watching those movies and mm-hmm. and with the exception of one or two uh, i don't think i'll watch them ever again
1: yeah. and and that's completely understandable and i don't i will never criticize anybody who's like i will never watch a insert person here, you know, Kevin Spacey movie, whatever. Again, that is perfectly fine. I have no, you know, like, oh, how do you like that movie? Sorry, I like it. Like, it, what he did was terrible, allegations, you know, things of that sort. But I'm, you know, I'm just here to enjoy movies.
0: I, I think we all can agree that we uh, easily can avoid uh, Kevin Spacey's uh, whatever that movie was where he turned into a cat. I think we all are better off not visiting that movie.
1: That, I, wait, wait.
0: Um, I suddenly cannot remember the name of it. It was a family I, comedy. I'm having to look it up now. because Where he became a cat? Nine Lives, yes. Wow. That, I thought that was it. Yes, he, he a stuffy businessman finds himself trapped inside the body of his family's cat.
1: That's horrifying. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I remember when Tim Allen became the Shaggy Dog, and I thought, well, this can't get much worse. And then for you to tell me that I'm assuming afterwards Kevin Spacey became the family cat. I mean, talk about taking it up a level. <laughs>
0: Yes, and Bill Murray voiced Garfield. Um, (laughs) All right, well, let's go ahead and get into the movie, because I know we both have a lot to talk about, uh, both uh, about the movie itself and around the film. Mm -hmm. So you picked 1995's Seven, written by Andrew Kevin Walker, directed by David Fincher, starring Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, Kevin Spacey, and Gwyneth Paltrow. Do you like what you do for a living?
1: these things you see we have to wear blinders sometimes most eyes detective william somerset is looking for a way out
0: you're retiring six more days and you're all the way gone so how long have you lived here
1: too long Detective David Mills is looking for a way in. We'll be spending every waking hour together from now until the time I leave. I'll show you who your friends and enemies are. Look, I'm going homicide five
0: years.
1: Not here. Now... It's we have ourselves a homicide. They're caught in a game. No fingerprints no witnesses of any kind.
0: Nope. About the only thing we know about that guy right now is he's totally insane. With the
1: price of sin is dead there are seven deadly sins gluttony you're gonna come take a look at this greed no one touches anything sloth wrath pride lust and envy seven you can expect five more of these body was found on tuesday morning i hate this city
0: i gonna get who did this this will be the very
1: definition of swift justice there are two more bodies two more victims This guy's methodical, exacting, and, worst of all, patient. He's laughing at us.
0: He he had a gun.
1: He's two murders away from completing his masterpiece. Let's finish it. Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow, seen anything like this no seven
0: so as always we start with how do you describe this movie to someone who has not seen it how do you sell people on
1: watching this movie wow, wow. uh that's so that I know the question's coming and it's such a hard answer because I've been thinking about it for for two days. How would I sell this movie to somebody
0: Probably, it, probably much like the film's promotions, you don't include Kevin Spacey in that description. <laughs> no, not at, not at all.
1: The best acted Fincher movie, and Fincher before he got out of control. This, to me, this is the best Fincher movie, and I really enjoy his movies. I like Zodiac. Uh, I really liked uh, The Social Network and things of that sort. I think this is still his best movie. I think it is a beautifully shot, and I actually think the acting performances in it. We can get into that later are the best of any of their careers, including Gwyneth Paltrow.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to argue with you on that. There is an acting performance I want to discuss, but as you said, we'll, we'll get into that in a second. So, okay. Okay, so uh, again, going back to what I talked about in the opening, you know, we go from Batman Returns to to Necessary Roughness to, to Seven. Why this movie to talk about?
1: It's such a fascinating movie, and the, at the point of time where it came out, to me, this is... I don't... You are... Uh, when it comes to film, I absolutely bow at the altar of wraith but i want to say this this might be the last great pre-internet pre-cell phone movie because in 1998 you have a movie like enemy of the state where there's cell phones and cameras and satellites and all this stuff and it's only three years later and this movie feels like a generation before like this movie is so different in the cell phone era it is so different in the internet era like they have to give money to an FBI guy to print out a list of library patrons mm-hmm. to try and hopefully find this needle in a haystack. Like this is pre nine 11 of the Patriot act and all this collection of data, like this movie, <laughs> me- all this legal collection, what? Of Yes, data. legal collection of data. <laughs> but that's, but that's kind of it. Like he's right? like, well, who's that guy, you know? And, and again, all this fantastic stuff, but it really does feel like that. And I watched this movie and John Doe is in no way shape or form a good person and in no way shape or form is what he is doing right. And every once in a while, especially in that scene where they're driving to the final, you know, the uh, power lines, he says a few things and you kind of do the nah, I kind of get his point like he's the 90% wrong, 10% right and it's like, yeah, I kind of see what he says with some of the stuff and it's it's a to me, it's a fascinating movie when you kind of portray it onto yourself. You know, mm-hmm. he he has a great line. Again, the character, I don't want to say Spacey, but he has this great <laughs> line where he says, we see a deadly sin on every street corner and in every home, and we do nothing about it. And right. it's almost like he's this, I mean, avenging angel is easy to say because of the, the allegory with the church and, and all this stuff, but he almost is like this anti-hero that now would be turned into a Marvel or DC or whatever. It's almost like this impetus for this really terrible person who's trying to extract vengeance in a really twisted way.
0: Right. And what I found, and I mean, I guess I'll jump into that before I move to the other stuff, but that scene in particular stood out to me because this movie is about an aging cop close to retirement. And the main reason he's retiring is because he's gotten so cynical Mm-hmm. About the world, the, you know, he sees its seedy underbelly. He sees the apathy. He sees all of those things. And then you have Brad Pitt playing the kind of more idealistic, ambitious newcomer to the, mm-hmm. to this specific squad. I mean, he's not a rookie by any means. Yeah. And that scene in particular that you're talking about when they're driving out for the film's climax, it dawned on me that Spacey's character is essentially is the cynic that William is becoming, mm-hmm. that William is on the path. Now, that's not to say that that character, that, that Somerset is going to become a serial killer. Somerset is going to go to these these odds. That's obviously something broken within John Doe. But the rhetoric that he has given throughout the film about why he's retiring is exactly what John Doe is feeding on, exactly what he's trying to point out to everybody, exactly what's, what's propelling him to act.
1: Absolutely. And I watched this scene this morning. Because, again, I finished it this morning while I was at work. And I used to always think of the three. I love that scene. Like, the whole movie is incredible. That scene in particular, everything in the car is great. Yeah. But there's three things going on. And I always used to think that Spacey was number one in his acting in that. Pitt was number two. And Freeman was number three. Just in in their characters and what they do in that scene. Go watch that scene again and look at Morgan Freeman's eyes. Mm Mm-hmm. He has, number one, he has fantastic eye acting in this movie. Like his eyes really sell some seeds in this movie of just, you know, the, the shock, the horror, the almost coldness of a shark. Like he said, like this cynical look of just like, yeah, the world's kind of gone to shit and this is just the way it is. But the way he reacts to certain things and there's another. But now I think Morgan Freeman is the best person in that scene. Spacey is two and Pitts third. And there's a reason I put Pitt third. He's actually come to the realization and he talks about in the previous scenes where, you know, you were right. This guy's not insane. He's methodical. He's cold. He's all these things. And Pitt is playing the part of early movie mills where he calls him, a, you know, you're a movie of the week or that he's trying to break him. Right. And Morgan Freeman Somerset is watching to see John Doe's reactions to this because there's a scene where he kind of turns to Pitt and he gets this like quarter smile because he knows what he's trying to do right now the reason spacey in the role is number two in that scene because he knows what's already happened he right. actually knows that Pitt doesn't believe what he's saying and he almost calls him out on it. but he doesn't want to he's like i don't want to give it away i don't want to give away the surprise like he knows but morgan freeman in that scene particularly is incredible especially when he catches john doe and he says if, if you believe that you you're on a West, he goes, it doesn't work with martyrdom. And he kind of calls him out on some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. And John Doe gets a little unsettled. And it's almost like, I think part, you're right. He he does kind of get the, he's going to retire because he's become cynical. He It's that you 90, know, 10, 10% agrees with where John Doe's going, but the 90% is way off board. But Somerset has never had somebody intellectually that could match him. Right, and that
0: was something the uh, author, the, the screenwriter, specifically wanted was that John Doe and Somerset were intellectual equals.
1: Yes, and I also think that there's a part because we know what he takes from Brad Pitt. We, he takes something from everybody, you know, right. whether it's the pound of flesh or the you know the the pride, the, everything he takes from them. He doesn't take anything from Somerset unless you want to argue that Mills is the de facto child he didn't have, so therefore he's taking Mills from Somerset. Well, actually,
0: I'd argue he does take something from Somerset. Because okay. the last line, the coda that it was put on, that was put on at the studio's insistence, by the way. The mm-hmm. film was originally supposed to end with Mills pulling the trigger, cut to black. Yes. And credits. Uh, but we get that last scene where the captain says, you know, we'll take care of him. Mm-hmm. Where will you be? And he says, around. I'll be mm-hmm. around. And I interpret that as – He's not retiring because Mills called him out on that because he says the reason he's retiring is all this apathy and all this cynicism. And Mills says, that's bullshit. Yeah. You're not retiring because of that. You, that exists because you're retiring. That's your way of justifying it. Mm-hmm. And I interpret it as he, he's not retiring, so he'll be around. And therefore, the, John Doe steals the future that he was looking forward to.
1: Very good points. I thought about that myself. Now, I will push back with this. Sure. It's when somebody works their whole life, and even if they're tired and they're broken down, and they retire, and in six months, they're dead because they just don't have anything to do. I think if Somerset walks off into the sunset, he doesn't have anything to do. He's going to spend more time in the library. He's going to stay around the town that has made him this person. No, he's not. He's actually going to probably end up somewhere upstate where Mills and his wife, came from or somewhere different we could argue about where this movie set. i have a really good question about that but but he's a guy who might end up killing himself in six months because his life is so empty like it's it you don't want to compare it to lethal weapon because they're not the same movie but like no murtaugh needed Riggs to kind of get him to see like i can still be helpful and i think somerset needed mills to look at him and say listen everybody around you may accept the fact that you're gone, you know, the opening scene where he's like, we can't all wait till you're out of here. And, you know, and even his captain kind of calls him out. He goes, you're going to miss this, you know, you're going to, but he doesn't have the energy to fight him because he's even older, you know, (laughs) and all that. But peace of mind, I guess you could say dope took from him. Yeah. But not something tangible. And maybe that's the point. Maybe it's a Somerset doesn't have anything tangible. Maybe it's his intellectual property, his mind. That is what's going to, get him through the day. And when he takes mills, life from him and takes Tracy's life from him, that's really that that's what he's taking from him. But, and and that's one of the deleted sections
0: of the movie that I almost kind of wish they had cut, they had kept with, which was originally the film was supposed to open with Somerset looking at a home out in the country. Mm -hmm. And he cuts a swatch of the wallpaper off and puts it in his pocket to keep as kind of the reminder of what he's working towards. And there was even a scene when he has dinner with Mills and Tracy, where when he takes his gun off, that swatch comes out of his pocket and he explains to Tracy, that's the future, you know, that's it. And if they had kept that in, mm-hmm. then it would have been a more tangible, this is what John Doe took from him because there was a, a physical thing, but they decided to scrap that idea. They, they cut that little bit of the scene out and, you know,
1: that kind of thing. I'm kind of glad they did. I, I like that idea. I I do like that if it, if they're going to go that route, but the way it ended, because essentially all we ever see what does Somerset have, he has the job, right? He, that's it. He has the job. He doesn't have a second home. He doesn't have this. Like he still never says probably a
0: rented apartment.
1: Probably. It's probably rent controlled. It may have even been the apartment when he was younger. Like he took it over when his parents passed away or whatever. Like it's, that's all he has is the job. And if he's not at work, what's he doing? He's researching the job. He's in the library. He's right. doing the other things. I mean, that's what he has. All right. What is your history with this movie? Getting back on track to to this, because I need to talk about my history with this movie. So what is your history with this movie? I can't tell you the exact first time I saw it, but I know it was when I was in high school because that's when it came out. And my mom used to get, you know, the free week of HBO, the free week of Cinemax. And I remember seeing it and a uh, huge Nine Inch Nails fan. So the first time I saw it, I was like, well, that's a remix version of Closer. Like, this looks right. cool. And it's and foreshadowing
0: the career of Fincher and I mean, Trent Reznor working together.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> and Morgan Freeman's in it. And I love Morgan Freeman. That's awesome. And Brad Pitt's in it. And Brad Pitt's pretty cool. And that looks great. And I watch it and I'm just like, this is fantastic. So, I mean, really from the first time it hit cable. So, what, 96, 95, 96. Always been fascinated with it. Bought it on DVD, you know, when it come out and, and watched it. Literally hundreds of times and just really, really, when we get into more of the movie, it's, it's fascinating. But just, sure. I mean, a 25-year, 26-year, you know, just love affair with this movie.
0: Sure. Well, when I was a teenager, I, I remember, I guess, late in my teens or maybe my early 20s, I, I I had fallen in love with – I mean, I fell in love with film at a, at a young age. But I had fallen in love with storytelling enough that I had, had recognized kind of the archetypal narrative without even ever – Studying, you know, Joseph Campbell or anything like that. I just, I just, I recognized these are the pieces of how a story would put together. And I remember distinctly, late in my teens, early twenties, wishing that somebody would make a story without a happy ending. You know, and I love Disney films. I love the the Disney they had lived happily ever after. But I I was like, wouldn't it be an interesting experiment if somebody made a movie where the bad guys win? Mm -hmm. How would that play out? And I I saw this movie, I know I rented it, so it had to be on VHS. So it had to be like, yeah, as you said, late 95, early 96. And I saw this movie. And I went, wow, that was the dumbest idea I ever had. I'm never watching this movie again. And I had made it. Until 2022, when some asshole decides to pick it for my podcast. Wow. <laughs> it, is, it is one <laughs> of, of a very small handful of movies that I watched and disturbed me to the point that I said, okay, I'm never going to watch that again. Odd- Interestingly enough, 8mm is one of those movies, and it's also written by Andrew Kevin Walker, who wrote yes. this film. Old Boy, not the American. I still haven't seen the American version, but the, the original Old Boy is so disturbing that I just... Couldn't bring myself to watch it again. But this – I had not watched this movie since the late 90s, since since I originally watched it. And I, I probably would have never watched it again had you not picked it for the podcast. And that's I'm why so when you picked it, I went, I
1: hate you. I'm <laughs> so happy. <laughs> for, for anybody who doesn't get it. I, I Listen, I could – I always feel like I bother people when I message them. So I try and give Rafe his space. So like once in a blue, man, I'm like, Hey man, how you doing? Everything's great. And then he's like, what do you want to do for, you know, the next movie, you know, coming back to the trifecta and I have this and this and this. And then I pick seven, like a few months ago and he does. And he's like, I hate you. And he's like, but I can't tell you why I hate you. Right. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Cause now I'm going to stew about it for a couple months. And until this exact moment, Riff, I swear at the hand raised to whoever, I totally forgot that you said you hated me. When <laughs> I'm so glad that I forgot because that is, Awesome! I'm- yeah,
0: and I mean, and and don't get me wrong. I'm glad we you made me revisit it because <laughs> yeah. it is a, a really good film, and it is as you said, Fincher has kind of gone off the rails in the last few years, and it is a good example of why he was such a promising filmmaker at the beginning. Like, I like Alien Three, mm-hmm. and I I know that that's blasphemy for like the Alien crowd and stuff, but <laughs> I liked I liked Fincher's style, so. I still think the ending of this movie is horrific. I mean, it didn't impact me as hard this time because I knew what was coming, yeah. but I, it is. And and that ending is something we need to talk about because of how the studio wanted to shift it. But before we do, let's go ahead and get into the critical section here. Uh, the movie sits at 82% at Rotten Tomatoes with a 95% audience score. But so then 5% it only is race. <laughs> <laughs> then it only sits at 65% at Metacritic. Always pull in a positive and negative review. Uh, and what I want – what I find interesting about the positive review is some of the comparisons that are made for this movie. Because Ebert in in part of his review also said that the, the mo- ending of this movie is its downfall. So I, I found but, – but I didn't pull that part. Uh, so positive review comes from Roger Ebert. Uh, who wrote, What's being used here is the same sort of approach William Friedkin employed in The Exorcist and Jonathan Demme in The Silence of the Lambs. What could become a routine cop movie is elevated by the evocation of dread mythology and symbolism. Seven is not really a very deep or profound film, but it provides the convincing illusion of one. Almost all mainstream th- thrillers seek first to provide entertainment. This one intends to fascinate and appall. By giving the impression of scholarship, Detective Somerset lends a depth and significant to what the killer apparently considers moral statements.
1: I got tricked then because I think this movie has a lot of depth. I think that there is something, in, that this is like a movie what I would say is in between the margins. Like when you really look in some of those scenes, at some of the interactions of secondary characters, I think it does have a lot of depth. But maybe I'm just one of the suckers that, misunderstood the illusion of depth
0: with a 95% audience score at rotten tomatoes. I would suggest maybe Ebert didn't give it enough credit for having depth.
1: I I tend to agree. When you read that, I, I agreed with everything else. He said it's jaws. You don't see the killer until the last act. You don't, you know, there's, there's proof all throughout the movie that the killer is there and the killer lets, you know, it's there, but you don't really get exposed to the killer until the final act. And you know, everything he said with The Exorcist and Silence of the Lambs and all that.
0: Well, and one of the, the notes that I made while I was watching it this time is that, you know, with without this movie, like, because to me, some of the importance of depth and stuff is how does it contribute to the ongoing conversation? How does it inspire the the future of filmmaking? So Ebert is giving this credit of building on the foundation of The Exorcist and Silence of the Lambs. And that's that's a pretty heady foundation to add to. But I would argue without Seven... You don't get the saw movies, you know, especially that conversation in the in the car the, him him justifying why he's doing this and the fact that he has been preying on the sins that these people have committed well that's that's jigsaw. that's exactly what he does
1: that's, yeah, no you're you're absolutely right.
0: All right. The negative review comes from Rita Kempley of the Washington Post. I will, I will say there were several really interesting negative review snippets on Rotten Tomatoes that I wanted to pull from. And it's interesting how many of those negative reviews are gone. They don't exist anymore on the internet. So, uh, this one comes from Rita Kempley of the Washington Post. And she says, Walker, a cashier at Tower Records, when he penned the screenplay, drew on the depressing day to day of New York City, which becomes a non-specific big rotten apple as depicted by Fincher. A former music video director, Fincher cloaked his first film, Aliens 3, in the same bleeding colors and oppressive gloom. Each crime is designed to reflect the victim's sins, but the shadows are often so thick that the finer points of the set are lost along with the clues. Sometimes the film is so murky, you have to wonder, is it art, or did Fincher just forget to pay the electric bill?
1: But you know what? It's kind of like you said, I love happy endings. I, You know, like, E.T. is my all-time favorite movie. And if you ever want to talk about it for six hours, I'd be more than happy to talk about it. <laughs> e. Pretty sure everybody's seen it. So I can't really go to the have not DT. E. But it's okay to be dark. Like yeah. I think there's but again, when you think of when this movie came out in 95, how many movies were there like this? I mean, right. even silence of the lambs is a dark telling movie, but with it, a happy ending. It, but it's just a movie. Like it's not like I mean, it's dark when she has obviously, you know, her and Jane Gum and all this, but like. The movie itself is shot normally. It's the colors of Mm -hmm. the West Forest. It's all this, you know, but like, it's just a movie. This is, I mean, she was right. It's gloomy. It's depressing. It's wet. It's all those things. And guess what? It absolutely fits the movie.
0: God, the the wet bothered me, Not, not bothered me, but it made me think of some screenwriters. I listened to their podcast and they talked about anytime you write a scene where it's raining, Remember that you're putting a hundred different people, cast, crew, etc., yeah. through a, <laughs> a, through a through a ten hour day of wet, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I, that's all I could think of because <laughs> this movie is, except for the power line scene, this movie is mm-hmm. wet, and they did that apparently so that if they had bad weather, it did inf- affect the uh,
1: shooting schedule. Yeah, if it rained for real, they wouldn't have to reshoot a scene because it was all wet. It was all right, but you know what? It, I was watching this knowing that because I, I did know that piece of trivia that it was on purpose that they had it basically rain the whole time. That chase scene is made a hundred times better because it's raining. That like, chase the, scene all, is incredible. Oh my, talking about great chase scenes. Like it's a car chase with no cars. It's incredible. And the way that, okay, I, you are great about keeping us on topic, but I warned you this might go off topic.
0: We're now off the script. So, whatever you right. want to do.
1: Okay. Can I just say this? Brad Pitt has never been better in his life than this movie ever that Bet- he's not better than oceans 11. He's not better than in *Inglorious bastards. I love those movies, but I'm telling you at this point, remember he was like world sexiest man. He right. was, he was like a off legends pony. of the fall to do this yes. movie. Yes. He was a one trick pony at best. He was really good looking and he was intense. He is incredible in this movie. And in that chase scene, It is so unnerving because there's something they do in this that is incredible. Like normally it's almost like cops are like Jason Voorhees. They know where the people are. They make it. And he's coming around every corner terrified. He's looking like, I don't know where he went and he hears something. And now he's got to run to the other end of the hall, but what gets the door, he's got to stop because you don't know. And that chasing, especially is so, so good. And him in this movie and him and Morgan Freeman, I, I, Cannot say enough about their chemistry. I don't know if I I assume they got along during filming. I don't know how much time they spent together before filming, but I'm not sure you could have found two people at their apexes who matched up so well to these guys. Right? It's so perfect. I mean, it's not a buddy cop movie. It's not. It's just it's something else. But Pitt, especially, like coming out of the rewatch last night and today, I just thought, man. Pitt is incredible. Like, he's the coolest he's ever looked with, like, the facial hair and the, like, the short haircut and, like, the long coat, you know, like, the leather coat. Like, he wasn't trying to be Legends of the Fall guy or, you know, Thelma and Louise guy. He really took a bite out of this part. Like, he brought something to it. It's
0: interesting because I was having this exact thought uh, while I was watching it is if I was the age I am now watching this movie for the first time. And like like if I was this age back then, mm-hmm. I would because Brad Pitt still wasn't firmly entrenched as a as a serious actor, he was a pretty boy. Mm-hmm. I would have watched this and wondered, do I not like Pitt or do I not like Mills? Like is he just so effective as this ambitious mm-hmm. kind of a dick? Detective, or is it just Brad Pitt's not a good actor? And, 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 cause I've had that happen before. I had that happen with, um, Joaquin Phoenix and Gladiator. When I saw mm-hmm. Gladiator and I was like, is it the character or is it the actor? And, you know, sooner or later you find out, oh yeah, okay, it's one or the other. And yeah. I think if I had watched this for the first time and I didn't know Pr- Pitt's career, I would have been annoyed potentially at Pitt instead mm-hmm. of, the right direction, which is the character. His performance in this is quite good. I would still argue 12 Monkeys is a better performance from Pitt, but that's just, I'm, I'm, that's my personal favorite, Brad Pitt. But I, no, I can't ar- disagree with you as far as just he's, he's on point in this film. You know, he is from the moment he shows up and. Like he's got he's got this just smile that you want to punch in that his first scene when he's walking along the street with Morgan Freeman and he's got the he just keeps getting this smile. And it's like, oh, my God, you're a jerk. And you just met me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like so, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think the performances in this. The, the two that I want to throw out real quick, Ar- Arlie Ermy plays possibly one of the most subdued performances. I mean, he's this is a man who has made his career off of being the over-the-top drill instructor. And so for him to play the police chief here in such a subdued nature was a nice, refreshing change
1: from how, how he normally acts. He is incredible in this. He's, you're waiting for that. One. Again, if you have a, a history with Arlie Irby, whether it's from Bull Metal Jacket or even like Saving Silverman or what was the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, like right. those, where he's just this vile, terrible, like you said, over the top, all this stuff. And you watch him, and you're like, wow, he's like a real actor in this, yeah. and he's so good. His his interactions with Somerset and the, there's a history between them. He goes, you know, it wouldn't be the first time you left something unfinished. Right. And, and you know, the, the greatest line maybe in the history of cinema was, this ain't even my desk. Like, it, it's <laughs> so... I love <laughs> that he picks up the phone and yells at it to it. It's so good. It's so good. He it, No, he he is incredible in this. And even in the last scene, like, very subdued. It's obviously a very somber scene. And he's like, we'll take care of him," Right. And, it, it, and there is that, like, where you what's he in the movie for seven minutes total if that and he's like a secondary character in most of it and you do feel that kind of like warmth where it's not just police talk where it's like mm-hmm. we'll we'll actually take care of him.
0: well and then the fincher staple uh and one of my favorite actors uh john c mcginley um California. Him- Yeah, it's California. And like, okay, it's a small role. He's just barking orders and leading the troops as they raid the the location and then in the helicopter later. But I actually – I honestly think his barking orders – Uh, even off screen, just that we're hearing helps intensify that climactic scene in a whole, in a whole different way. Like as if that scene isn't intense enough, having him barking orders and like questioning what's going on and that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff just really added to that scene for me. And I was like, Oh man, it's so, it's so good to see him playing those
1: kinds of roles. It is. And it's so, it's so weird because I remember when I first watched it, I didn't have like a huge history. Like he was a, that guy He's like, Oh, I've seen that guy. Yeah. I've, I've seen that guy. And then as I get older and I'm like, you know, huge Scrubs fan and huge everything fan. I'm like, oh, it's it's Johnny C. It's John C. McGinley. And like you said, when they go to the sloth apartment and he's doing it, yo, know, Dex, Dex, get in here. You know, and he's yelling and screaming. If not for the studio stepping in and making them kind of finish the movie in a different way, he maybe has the second greatest closing line in movies where he's in the chopper and it's swirling around and he says, somebody call somebody. Right. And then he says, call somebody. And it just fades to black before, of course we see, you know, in the car and everything, but that right there is a perfect personification of that movie where he doesn't even know what's going on. Right. Somebody calls somebody like he's clearly the leader of the SWAT team. You know, we see that in the sloth he's, he's up there with the goggles, you know, he's watching from the helicopter. So he's in charge. Right. But he knows everybody. He knows the situation. And for him to say somebody call somebody is really unsettling.
0: Right. Because because his brain has broken down as to what he's just seen. And it's like something has to happen now. But what is it?
1: Yeah. Like he didn't say, you know, call the captain, called it. Somebody call somebody. And then he just kind of like maybe half says call somebody. Like he just, so like you said. And guess what? He doesn't even know what's in the box yet. Right. But like he knows there's something in it that drove Mills to kill the prisoner. And all he can muster is somebody call somebody. Right. Right yeah, I mean it's, it's 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 it's
0: just tiny little tidbit performances like that that as I said, I, I mean I of course Morgan Freeman is brilliant in this and of course you know Spacey plays that character very effectively and and mm-hmm. as you said, Brad Pitt is uh, you know I mean he is uh, giving a, a great performance. I don't think it's his best personally, but that's that's always going to be a personal thing. So Can
1: we talk about Freeman real quick. Sure. Morgan Freeman in this movie, this is my opinion. Which, as we know from two previous movies, is not with the best opinion, <laughs> is the greatest on screen police officer in the history of movies. He is, th- this is why I say this. And I'm sure you're racking your brain right now thinking, well, now there's Pet Petal. <laughs> like, but he has a code. Mm-hmm. And number one, number two, super smart. Mm-hmm. Like he's not just a dumb cop. What's he? He said, he, I've drawn my weapon three times he had drawn
0: his weapon three times prior to the events of this movie and never fired it. And over the course of this movie, he draws it two more times and shoots into the air.
1: Yes. Which tells you the level of stress that he is under. Absolutely. He is, he is patient. See in the movie, they, they set it up like it's John Doe versus Mills towards the end. It's actually John Doe versus Somerset. Right. And, and, and the thing about it is, is Somerset is of, equal mental capability and all this and i i just the way he plays it is so perfect and and the part that really sold me on it and this happened years ago is i'm watching the movie and the first scene when they're in the apartment that you don't know and it's you know it's a crime of passion yeah i looked at all that passion up on the wall or whatever and he looks at the refrigerator and he says did the kid see it yep and the cop goes what the hell are you talking about did the kid see it like yeah you know, we can't wait till you're gone but he's always saying it's always second, third level.
0: That one thing I liked about that intro scene is it shows a level of empathy for his character that most of the other cops don't have. And I mean, and and Mills movie.
1: yeah, you're right. I mean, he talks about the apathy of the world around him. And here he is walking into this scene, seeing this horrific thing, you know, this man and woman, both dead, you know, all this stuff. And he's looking around and he's not looking at the bodies. There's nothing he can do with the bodies. He's looking around at everything else, which is a perfect setup when they get into John Doe's apartment later, the way they both kind of work through the apartment and find the rooms and look at the stuff and all of that. But when he looks and sees this picture and you know drawn by a kid, and the kids see it. And I, I just... There is something about his character in this movie. And again, I don't think Brad Pitt would be allowed to be the character he was in this movie if it weren't for such a strong performance of Morgan Freeman.
0: Sure. No, he needs, they need the foil of each other to play off of in order to be effective. I mean, that's,
1: yeah. And he, he's got a great line where they're at the where they're at their apartment and, she's, and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, she goes, yep, he's the funniest person I ever, he's the funniest guy I ever met. And he goes, really? Like that kind of just the, the one time. <laughs> The one time he allows himself to almost be like, you know, openly judgmental.
0: (laughs) But that same scene makes me a little sad, too. Or I guess the next scene when they're actually having dinner, because he says you get numb after a while. And he's he's talking about. He's talking about the city, the fact that, that, that she's not particularly happy with having moved to this mystery city. Well, that's a good segue into talking about that in a second. He's, he's talking about the city, but he also is talking about the police work, about the, work, the job itself is going to numb Mills after a while. Yeah.
1: I'm Annie from Boston, Massachusetts.
0: And I'm Johanna from Vienna, Austria. We're the hosts of Fresh Hell, your international podcast that covers murder, mystery and the macabre throughout history. Are you interested in the 3,569 ways your household could have killed you in
1: the Victorian era? Do you know how malaria and syphilis played a role in the John List family murders?
0: And have you ever wondered what Prince Albert's sex chair had to do with the murder of Stanford
1: White? Okay, nothing. It had nothing to do with it. We're still telling you about it, though. It's a pretty great sex chair. If you're looking for another show that talks about Ted Bundy, this is probably not the podcast for you. But if you're looking for two women that cover lesser-known cases from all over the world with a lot of background information...
0: So much background information that you will rock your local pub quiz
1: from now on. Then find Fresh Hell Podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also have German cannibals. See you soon. Tschüss.
0: As I said, good segue. Uh, where
1: is this set? You, you, I assumed New York. Listen, New York is the 98% of the time. If we're, if we're playing Family Feud in 98, we ask 100 people, where's the movie 7 set? It's in New York. It's some sort, you know, the, the cab says Metro. It's kind of this, you know, stand in for New York City and all that. I would like to think that it's in the Pacific Northwest. I I like to think whether it's not necessarily Seattle or Portland, maybe another city is still big enough. They could do it. Plus if they drive East, they get into more of where the power lines and stuff are. That's a Mm -hmm. little bit more like, I'm not sure where in New York you'd be able to drive there, but it's movie making, but let's call it New York.
0: The reason I assume New York is because Paltrow at that dinner conversation or no uh, at at her next conversation with, with Freeman refers to upstate upstate.
1: Yeah. And that's, but that's why I also say like the Pacific Northwest, because you could get into more of the rural, rural areas, you know, a little bit more peaceful. You're up in the mountains, you're up in the, you know, things of that sort. But it it pretty much is a stand in for New York, which is kind of frustrating because I I want it to be a West coast city. I don't know why I I just, (laughs) because so much is said in New York, like it can't even be Chicago. It, It has to be New York. You know what I mean? And it's like, I don't want it to be there, but it, I have to say, I've been waiting for this question. I've been waiting for the right person for this question. And I've never spoken this aloud. I have something to ask you. alright let's, let's say that the movie Seven is set in New York or okay. Metro or whatever you want to call it. I can't believe I'm asking this because I'm not sure how you're going to react. Is John Doe the best on-screen portrayal of the Joker? I want, um, I want you to I, see now. I see your face
0: better. He's better than Joaquin Phoenix. I'll give you that.
1: <laughs> okay. But but if we put the scattered puzzle pieces together, do you at least see where I'm coming? from? Yeah, no, if you if you take if you were to take the Joker mm-hmm.
0: out of comic book universe. So now so you can't get away with any of the stuff that you can do in superhero comic book type films. Mm-hmm. You've got to make him a normal guy. Yeah, absolutely, totally see that. Although
1: it, well, no, yeah, because think of it this way. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not keen on the comic books. I know there's different iterations and all this, but let let's take the Joker that is the most violent one, which I believe is the cartoons. Like that's one where he really kills people mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Okay, mm-hmm. so like you said, let's take him out of the universe of comic books. He can't do all the you know ah, the laughing gas, all this stuff. What's his goal? is to menace his enemies, to punish people, and to punish people around his enemies. And who does he look at as his enemy? It's Batman. So let's take a composite of the rich billionaire, Bruce Wayne. So let's make that Mills and the super intelligent Batman, who's Somerset. So let's say you split Batman in half. and You have have thought a lot about this. (laughs) About this. And John Doe, what's his ultimate goal? is to punish, is to make Batman's life miserable. What's he do? He makes them walk into that apartment one year later. What's he do? He makes them have to interview witnesses, to have to find the crime scenes to figure it out. He gives them just enough clues. And just when you think you have them, what does he do? He walks into the police station bloody. Is that not something the Joker would do Mm -hmm. in the movie where he would walk? Oh, you got me, but the game's not over yet. And when it's all said and done, I'm perfectly content with the way things end and you will not be. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about that. Ending. And yeah, you're right. I mean, I would, I would definitely put him above, you know, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, Jared Leto's Joker. You know, so yeah, yeah. I, I definitely can. I, that's that's an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about that. But let's talk about that ending because that is the thing that put me off from this film. I mean, it is, it is, simultaneously brilliant and abhorrent. You know, he sets up the last two murders so that one of them is his mm-hmm. because he envies the life that Mills has. And that turns Mills into Wrath. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the downfall of this is I don't think Mills will be put to death. So he 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 turns Mills to Wrath, but he doesn't get the, the killing that he has with all the other sins. The studio wanted it changed to a dog's head in the box. The studio had one iteration where Somerset pulls the trigger. Mm-hmm. Like Mills asks him, what are you doing? And his response is, I'm retiring. And he pulls the trigger, which keeps John Doe from winning.
1: I don't like that. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't. And, and because you'd have to change the dialogue leading right. up to that. Because when he comes, like, you know, he throws down his gun. So the whole scene would have to be changed. Like, okay, the idea is there. I, I don't know. Like that scene just doesn't exist the way it does then because of everything right, right. he does leading up to it. My biggest problem with it, and I, I do actually like this scene, except for one part. John Doe is a liar. What do you mean? John Doe, his sin is not envy. Right.
0: Think about this. No, and yeah, and that's that's the the thin that's, line that is like, you're not envy.
1: No, he's, it, because, let, let's go through the murders real quick. So we have gluttony. This was a man who lived his whole life. That is it. He's a glutton. Greed. This guy was a lawyer for what let's assume he's in his 40s 50s been a lawyer 20 25 years taking money from these people yo i'm just dondo's whose job was to keep rapists and murderers on the street sloth you know drug dealer pederast went to jail all these things we have um, lust, lust which, uh, you know, woman, who he was,
0: claims she was like, uh, uh, infected, uh, you know, like diseased is the word yes. he, he, yes. he claims she was diseased. We never food. get any evidence about that though.
1: No, but I have a really fun fan fiction theory about that. I don't know if we'll get into it or not, but okay. <laughs> so those, so there's the five, this is a lifetime spent. No. And pride. Of, and I'm sorry. And pride. You know, this beautiful woman. Who's obviously a model who, you know, because you can see the glamour shot up top. Like she's right. clearly a model. The pride. Yeah, I forgot pride. So there's the five right there. A lifetime of sinning spent by these people. And because John Doe does a little bit of digging for what, 18 hours, finds that he has this beautiful wife in a shithole apartment. So he goes, so he's almost forcing the issue. He goes, and I became envious. No, you didn't, because you've seen better looking people on the subway, because you said, like, there's something about that scene that I don't like. And it's the fact that he does. David becomes rat. Right, we know he becomes. Rat. Oh yeah, fully. But John Doe is not Envy. He is not the true. And and I do wonder if it became they needed to speed up the ending because the others are drawn out so much, which I love by the way. Like, right. If this movie was a half hour longer and really fit Envy in, like that would be fine. Now, if if it was to be found out that John Doe had been admiring them from a distance, that he knew them when they were upstate that I've been following you your whole life. I know the doctor that your wife goes to, but then it becomes that, that wouldn't have worked
0: for me because then that would have been convenience and coincidence that, it's- Oh, he's been, he's been planting the seeds for yeah. sloth here for a year,
1: Then it but turns he's into been upstate saw, checking. Yeah. It, yeah. No, that, that doesn't work for me at all. That's what I'm saying. But that would be the only like thing. So, so he doesn't really become envy now. Right. I do want to say it's the question that has been asked for years, but I think it's an easy answer. Her head was facing straight up, right? The face was facing out. I that's assume what so, saw. because when he jumped back, he knew it was Tracy. Yeah. If, if-
0: see, the first time I saw the movie, my assumption it wasn't until he said the thing about the pretty head. Yeah. My assumption was it was the fetus, the fetus. You know that yeah. he had aborted the fetus, or that she had gotten an abortion and he had collected it somehow or something, mm-hmm. and that's that was my assumption until it was like, oh, it's her head, because it's we don't see
1: it. No, which is which is a great. You can't see it. Like that scene works so much better. The fact that you can't see it because Somerset's right. face tells you again, great eye acting, great actor by Morgan Freeman is the fact that he jumps back and he, he's just like, at that moment, he knew everything was over. Yeah. And, and, and what does he tell, you know, the cops swirling ahead, you know, get back. Don't come closer. John Doe has the upper hand. And it's like, you're two armed detectives with a handcuffed, you know, prisoner. Like, what do you mean he has the upper hand? And he can't say it. Right. And there's another Great part when he gets back to where they're talking, and, and that's a great scene between Spacey and Pitt, you know, they're going, you know, shut the fuck up. And he's he's basically trying to ignore him and listen to Somerset and all this other stuff. And when Morgan Freeman comes back and he says, put the gun down, and he throws his gun. Like he doesn't even want it close because right. he, he just doesn't want the option. And if you're gonna get if you're gonna make me say one bad thing about the scene, I will say this: I don't like the flash frame of Gwyneth Paltrow. Mm. I, I, I just I get that's like his thing. He sees his wife and, and that's it. I just, I don't, I don't like that.
0: That that would have been something I would have originally kind of torn this movie apart about. Like I, I wouldn't have liked the introduction of her. She's not essential to the plot. I wouldn't have liked that she meets Somerset for coffee and reveals to him that she's pregnant. Although that pregnant us all as the audience, knowing that she's pregnant, ratchets up the tension of that chase scene even more because we know. Mm-hmm. And, and Somerset knows that he, you know here, here he's facing off against a, an armed villain an armed enemy and if something happens to him she's now going to be raising this kid alone. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't have liked that but damn it that pay, the ending makes it pay off like it's like okay, it was worth
1: spending time with her. It does and and to we'll step away from the scene for two seconds that sit down scene between Freeman and Paltrow is why I think that this is maybe her best movie. Uh, I'm not a huge Gwyneth Paltrow fan. I was going to say, it's not a high bar, (laughs) but she's really good in that scene. She's really good with him where she's just like, and he calls her out and he goes, what did you really want to talk to me about? And not in a rude way, but like you're dancing around the the subject and all that. And his story is great. And there's another moment where he says, you know, finally I beat her down and she went and got it. And you can and the remorse in his eyes when he says, I wore her down. And, and also the disgust in her eyes where yeah. she's like, I can't believe you did that. Like here, I thought you were this, this really nice guy and all this. And it's almost like she's betrayed, but she's also trying not to be judgmental because ideally she's a good person. But you can see that she's hurt by that. And his scene you know, where he finishes it up and he says, you know, if you do decide to terminate it, don't ever tell him. Right. But if you do you spoil him. And when he says spoil and she starts to cry and all that, like there's this really deep connection that, and no offense, Morgan Freeman doesn't get to do that very often in movies. He's really not put against a woman a lot of times, especially a a woman who's not a romantic partner or something like that. And that scene of like, it's not necessarily comforting, but like that kind of like, if you go through with this, you better be the best damn mother that there is. Right. And, And, and like she needed to hear that. Yeah. And, and and he needed to say it. Well, yeah, because he
0: regrets. That's a, that's a regret he carries. And he's, he's and he even says, "I know I made the right decision, but
1: not a day know. goes by that I don't think about it." Yeah. yeah, yeah. But but yeah, to get back to the final scene, like you said, it's such a great payoff because you assume she's going to keep it. She begs for the life of the child. That's what he tells him, you know. And she begs for the life of her unborn child. And what a great moment when Freeman slaps him, and you know the shut up, and he, you know he backhands him. And then that smirk, you know, when he comes and then you see Freeman kind of like rubbing the back of his hand, like he may be the hardest swing he's ever done in his life. Like he's so it's not who he is. It's not who he is, but he's so irate. Like he's like and he doesn't have to be irate like Leonardo DiCaprio or Brad Pitt get irate where they scream and throw or, or Joaquin Phoenix and all this. But like it's that backhand and that massaging of his knuckles and his look of just like utter despair.
0: Yeah. All right. We need to uh, move into the end game, but before we do, what have we not talked about that you want to talk about?
1: Oh man. Uh wow, <laughs> we gotta get into the end game. Let's get started. No, um we go over the sins because I, I wanna say I'm so glad that you hate this movie and that I have drugged you. I don't, you I don't hate it. I just oh, it it disgusts me. Uh, you can't cut the you can't cut it out, Rafe, even though you're gonna edit this. You can't <laughs> cut it out. You said it, we all heard it. It's it's over. <laughs> The premise of this is incredible. Like mm-hmm. here, you have the seven deadly sins sitting there for oh, I don't know, a couple centuries, and nobody had really ever, taken, you know. Like obviously, you could say, oh well, any movie about greed is about the seven deadly sins. But for somebody to take this idea and mm-hmm. really turn it into like we're gonna do a you know a who done it, a psychological thriller, a cop movie, but we're gonna tell you what a third away from the movie or a third of the way into the movies when they figure out that it's about the sins, right? Cause they don't you know, until greed or a quarter of the way through the movie. I guess the thing that really drew this to me also was the fact that were they innocent or were they not like, do you side with John Doe or do you not? Because there's a great thing I think they do is they give you absolutely no backstory to anybody who's killed.
0: Right. I disagree with John Doe because it's about perception. Like, he makes the comment about the gluttony that, you know, this man does nothing but eat. If you saw him on the street, you would point him out to your friends. And I was like, but that doesn't make him guilty of anything. It just makes you an asshole. Uh, And maybe that's because we're talking about this in 2022 when people are trying to be more conscientious about that kind of behavior. But, Mm -hmm. you know, like, we don't have evidence – that the lust victim was diseased. So she was a prostitute. Well, we've gotten, again, in 2022, you know, we've gotten to a point where we're trying not to shame sex workers and stuff. So, Mm -hmm. and I don't know
1: anybody who deserves to die the way that she did with that thing, man. Yeah, we could go into that. That, uh, I will (laughs) say this, in a movie full of kind of just crazy things, that, that's crazy. And I actually think that pays off more seeing it in a picture than seeing than it would the little have thing. on him. Like it, because you're like, wait, what? You know, I can't imagine what that would have been like seeing in theaters. You know, now we see it on VHS and DVD, and you can pause it, rewind, and be like, wait a minute, what was that? And right. I remember seeing it and just being like, what is like, what? Like, that's horrible. And then yeah. it's so I, I think it's really interesting. And gluttony, obviously, we know. And then the greed, you know, with the lawyer and the the pound of flesh and stuff like that. I think Sloth is where it gets really interesting.
0: Because he's a bad
1: man. Because he is. And we know he's a bad man. And it's almost like this interconnected, you know, obviously they think they have the guy because of the fingerprints from the greed victim and, and stuff like that. It's really, really tough. But again, like just the idea of using the seven deadly sins as kind of your pillars to build upon, to me is fascinating. And I'm kind of glad that other movies that I know of haven't really tried to copy this because, like you said, there's a different way to look at it in 2022. You know, when he calls them innocent, and of course John Doe takes it personally offensive that they were innocent and stuff, in 2022, now it would be unpopular to you know the obese person the person who is a sex worker the person who is this the person who is that uh you know a model you know now we have influencers which basically be the models of now you know, it would be some youtuber or something
0: and and her crime was that she's em- empty within so she's glad that she's beautiful without well that doesn't make her guilty of anything that makes her you know 75 of the public <laughs>
1: yeah yeah right you, you don't have to be a model to, to be vapid or to be you know whatever you want to say this person was, I want to ask you a question. I would never want to see a movie, but what if they wrote a prequel like the the gospel of John Doe? And because he would have to have some interaction with these people. He clearly followed the, the sex worker because he had the picture of her. He clearly knew these people. He knew where to look. I mean, he's a journalist. He's independently wealthy. Like, would you ever want to read something like that? No, I
0: think I'm. They they actually did push around the idea of a sequel, uh, mm-hmm. called Eight. They did actually push around the idea of a prequel that followed Somerset at a younger age. Maybe that might have interested me a little bit more. But one of the things I was thinking about today is how happy I am that this is just a self-contained story. And mm-hmm. even even the parts I don't like, boy, they stick with you at the end. But I'm okay with that being the extent of the story. I don't need the the background justification as to why he picked these people. I don't I don't need that stuff.
1: So. You said something there that made me think I, I, you've talked about like you watched it. It's very unsettling. There's parts that you're just, like, wow, I really don't like this part. What's your least favorite part of the movie, whether it's a story, a character, a murder, a well, scene? The, like- it's Brad Pitt pulling the trigger because
0: that's the moment that John Doe won, you know, that 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 he, he no matter how much we want to argue that he lied in mm-hmm. his mind, he mm-hmm. was envy and in his mind. He turns Mills into wrath, and so the moment that that, that Mills pulls that trigger and kills him, mm-hmm. John Doe won. I think I think the movie's really a good movie. Like, don't get me wrong. It is not that I hate it. It's just yeah. It's just that ending disturbed me the first time and it disturbed me again today but it's a disturbing film you know in in some ways and some of the ways that it's disturbing are are brilliant but ultimately Mm -hmm. the idea that the bad guy wins i guess i do like happy endings
1: too much to be okay with that no and that's that's fine i i I was thinking because I was trying to think, is it more of like a, a meta idea, just the fact of like the bad guy wins, which it is, you know, that's yeah. what you said. It, it's the fact that, you know, like you, you root for Mills, you root for Somerset. They've overcome everything. You know, they've been able to find them. They've been able to get him to this point. They've been able to do everything. It's not worked out the best, but they're here at this point. And then to just kind of lose it at the end. Exactly. Is, because is, they
0: don't find him. He turns himself in. They don't throughout the, you know, I, I get the impression and maybe I'm wrong, but I get the impression the only reason they find John Doe at the point that they find him in the movie is because he wanted him. They wanted him to. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted he wanted them to be able to find it because then – because if all he had done is turned himself in, they would never have gotten to see, you know, the the notebooks. Yeah. You know, that that's that part of his process, maybe they found it a little sooner than he thought, but part of his process was he wanted them to see that stuff you know the brilliance of his work. Yeah, no, you're right. So they didn't they don't get any victories the whole movie if you think about it. They're always a step behind. Yeah. And they don't find him. He turns himself in. They actually do realize that they had had him in their grasp literally the the previous day. Uh, the one thing I do want to point out that I thought was a brilliant evolution of character mm-hmm. is sloth. Yeah. Mills makes the exact same mistake he accused the cops of 4 days earlier. Are you sure he's dead? did you check him for a pulse? Mm -hmm. And that's the gluttony one. And four days later, they find the sloth one. And allegedly, they didn't tell anybody that that was an actor. And so those reactions that you get are genuine of when everybody
1: freaks out. You mean John C. McGinley, like basically doing a half backflip and getting the hell out of there? Like (laughs) he's terrified. He's (laughs) terrified. Uh, Listen, I know you want to get to the end game, but it's so good. And that's, I don't have a least favorite part of the movie, but if there was one thing that I don't don't like I've said it, it's the whole thing. but I guess the thing that I don't like is kind of think of a, of a way to say this. It's something I don't like, but I also really enjoy in hindsight. I don't like the fact that the cast is so small.
0: Oh, I love it. I mean, I, I. but then again, we already – we it even allowed us to highlight people like John C. McGinley and Arlie Ermey because it's not so small. It's just the, the yes. main cast that we spend all the time with is so
1: small. But it still gives some really good opportunities for other people. 100% agree now. 100% agree. But like there's a small part where oh, if there was like one more person in the scene, if there was one – more, like I'm so used to movies now and for years that have such large casts and such parts for everybody. But in hindsight, I'm glad, well, I'm glad it's basically like eight people. I'm glad that, you know, like here's Richard Schiff at the end, who's the attorney and Richard Roundtree who plays the district attorney and, you know, and something, there's these great little scenes, but I guess that's the only thing, but I know we're getting to the end game. I swear we're going to finish (laughs) it up, but trust me,
0: I have like eight other things I could talk about here. So (laughs)
1: Listen, I'm free, man. Uh, Whenever we'll have to do seven part two. Uh, but whenever whenever he walks into the police station, because we see them walking into the police station, the taxi pulls up. We can hear them in the distance. And then we get out and we see his pants and he's walking towards the police station. And they go in and the receptionist is like, hey, your wife called you You know, get an answering service. And they're walking up the stairs and you can lowly hear Spacey say, you know, officer, Yeah, detective. And then when he does that scream and they turn around that whole scene. Might be the most unsettling scene in the movie, sure. and I, because he's covered in blood, he's wearing a white shirt, his finger, and then like when the cop puts the handcuffs on him and he pulls his hands up, he goes, "What is this?" And he's just. But keep in mind, this is this case started on Monday, right? This is like Sunday, right? It's a week,
0: yeah. It's and a, that's, that's why I said the, the four days before, because literally four <laughs> days
1: later, he has, he's making the exact mistake he accused the officers of. And it's, you almost forget that watching the movie and they do a great job where they're like, you know, Monday, Tuesday, and and, and you're like, wait, this is like a week later. And it it's, it. but that whole scene is just incredible. And I, yeah, yep. again, that, I'll, I'll let you get the podcast back <laughs> under control because if you've got eight <laughs> more things, I'm fine.
0: All right, let's uh, go ahead and head into the end game here. First up, we have the algorithm says this is a lightning round emphasis on lightning, Joe. (laughs) This is a lightning round of movies. Various algorithms say you will like because you liked seven. So it's your reactions. Do you like them? Do you not like them? Do you not see how they're connected? That kind of thing. All right. First up, Fight Club.
1: Absolutely. I still
0: have not seen Fight Club.
1: Uh, Watch it and let's do a pod. I'm ready. (laughs) Go. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's incredible.
0: Okay. Silence of the Lambs.
1: Yes. Again, like all time classic. I mean, they talked about it and and all that stuff. It's really good.
0: Okay. Inception. Hmm. I mean, several algorithms said this and I was like, what?
1: I I, I guess like the, you know, it's, you think it's in one hand, it's in the other, I guess. But like, I don't know. Not really. Yeah. Uh, Pulp Fiction. (laughs) <laughs> can I go a, like? it is a podcast percent, joe <laughs> can I, can I guess like 40 or can i say like 40 percent of pulp fiction because I, I the longer i get away from watching pulp fiction the less i like it and oh, and really? i just yeah i just think there's too many parts in it that i mean i get that it all intertwines and there's all this stuff i, I don't know like i'm just not i now okay fair enough memento i mean yeah just because it, it it's always going to keep you guessing it's always it's they're edge of the seat thrillers. They they just always want to get, you know, like you're always like, can't kind of like we'll wait. Till something happens and, you know, right. Um, the Departed, another one I have not seen. That's my fifth movie. Let's, let's get them- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 7 a.m. tomorrow. Let's get these done. I like the movie. It's enjoyable. I, the only reason I'd say yes is because I think Bill's is the embryo for which Leonardo DiCaprio's character gets to play in The Departed.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Uh, the Shawshank Redemption.
1: One of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, anytime you want to talk about Shawshank, I will include it. So even though I don't see a whole lot of comparisons, I, I kind of get it. Morgan Freeman. I, I, again, yeah, like that, that's fine. But yeah, sure. Just because I get to love Shawshank. Right. Uh, Kiss the Girls. I really enjoyed it. I know it's Morgan Freeman again. I right. really enjoyed it. Um, sure. Okay. Uh, Unforgiven. Again, Morgan Freeman.
0: <laughs> right. That's all they could come up with. I mean, that's
1: a brilliant,
0: brilliant movie.
1: Yeah. So I mean, sure. Sure. Just because I think the the violence, the kind of not many likable characters, sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense.
0: Well, and it ties into the idea of redemption, mm-hmm. you know, to some degree. I mean, I can I could see thematically where it fits in a little bit more as well. Yeah. You know, that's this that we're all evil, that we're all
1: we all do bad. You know, yeah, so. kind of does, doesn't it doesn't doesn't if you if you think about it like that doesn't seven almost feel like a modern Western sure. like instead, of, I mean you know, John Doe, he's the bad guy of the plane, you know, John Doe, John Doe, is everybody would whisper his name, John Doe, once they figure, you know, if they hit the <laughs> papers, wasn't that what it would be like, though, it would almost be like town to town in the in the Wild West. It would be like, oh, they're you know, like we heard John Doe's in the area, something like that. It, it sure. Okay.
0: And lastly, Donnie Darko. I was never a big Donnie Darko fan. I was until I saw the director's cut and then realized he didn't actually know what he had made when he made the film.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, that's something.
0: (laughs) Yeah. All right. Finally, we always end with a pop quiz for multiple choice questions based on the movie that you selected. Here we go. Number one. And almost all of these tie into stuff we've already talked about, which is great, Uh, (laughs) but loosely. Uh, Number one, although it's never shown on screen, there was a fake Gwyneth Paltrow head created and put in the box for the climax of the film. The head would later make its on-screen debut in what film? A, Sliding Doors from 1996. B, Shakespeare in Love from 1998. C, Sylvia from 2003. Or D, Contagion in 2011.
1: Wow. I mean- I can't imagine they kept the head around that long. So I'll say sliding doors.
0: Uh, No, they kept the head around that long. It made its debut in Contagion in 2011. (laughs) Holy moly.
1: I bet you she probably kept it, too. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: Let's not go down that path.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Number two, Arlie Erme plays a very subdued role in the film as the police captain, but he actually auditioned for what other role in the film? a john doe b somerset c mills or d tracy
1: i gotta say somerset
0: no he actually auditioned for john
1: doe Wow! listen he's perfect as the captain yes. i'm not sure he pulls off the john doe plus he's too imposing like there's something about spacey being so small and skinny and everything like it just yeah Arlie army kind of just now
0: There's a a quote online from Fincher talking about why Ermy was not the right – because basically you you didn't feel any sympathy for him.
1: Are people supposed to feel sympathy for
0: Doe? Because I don't don't know. I don't know. All right. The last two tie into the massage parlor scene, which I found particularly thrilling. Uh, Number three, Leland Orser, who plays, quote, crazed man in massage parlor. He's the one that had to wear the device.
1: I'm well aware who he is.
0: Would go on to play the serial killer in what other film? A, Taken, B, Runaway Jury, C, The Bone Collector, or D, Very Bad
1: Things? A movie I've seen way too many times, The Bone Collector, yes. And see,
0: when you said earlier about Freeman being possibly the best cop on screen, my brain immediately went to Denzel Washington in that movie. Yeah. So, I don't know, because that's he's pretty
1: freaking awesome in that He's movie. really good in that. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I know we didn't talk about that. His hyperventilating in that scene, yeah, in the interrogation scene, again, to the end, quick, he's incredible. Yes. Absolutely incredible.
0: All right. And then lastly, Michael Massey, who plays, quote, man in the booth at the massage parlor, it's the guy who was in charge, mm-hmm. uh, was no stranger to roles like he had in Seven, later, later playing a serial killer himself in the series Rizzoli and Isles. However... During his career, he had to take a year-long break from acting following trauma from his involvement in what film? A, Seven, this movie. B, The Crow. C, Amistad. Or D, Catwoman. I'm going to say The Crow. Uh, Michael Massey was the man who pulled the trigger when Brandon Lee died. Wow. had to take a year-long break from acting in order to kind of come to terms with what had happened. So, yeah wow i did not know that that happened in between the crow was 1993 this is 1995 i couldn't find out like had he filmed stuff from this oh. before he took his break i couldn't find a timeline
1: for that but yeah i, I that's that's wow i yeah. i mean talk about true i i mean i was trying to think like well what trauma would he have on a movie he's like well i mean in 70s really is bald stuff i was like the crow i obviously knew about brandon lee and stuff And i'm like wow i did not know that that was the guy
0: Yeah, he's the guy. I mean, Catwoman gave everyone involved trauma, I think. So, you know. All right, man. Where can people find you? What do you want to promote?
1: Uh, You know, I've actually taken a break from podcasting. We talked about it at the beginning, you and I. So I really don't have anything to promote other than this podcast. If you have not listened to any of the previous episodes, which I'm assuming (laughs) if you're here, you've probably listened to them. Now, they're all wonderful episodes. I will say there are two that are near and dear to my heart. (laughs) One is with a nice, plucky up-and-comer. who did it with Rafe? Who did uh, Batman Returns? It's a wonderful episode. It is uh, another one is a great sports movie. Unnecessary or necessary roughness, featuring a much more mature, mature <laughs> person. Uh, and then there's this one. So I hope you enjoy. But no, and, uh, and how where? How do you describe
0: yourself now? If you were a more mature person by Necessary Roughness,
1: <laughs> uh, less mature. I've really regressed in the, in the time since we've done it. So I, it, I've gone back some. So a a. Less mature person doing this one. Uh, no, in all honesty, uh, just nothing for me, man. Just listen to this podcast. Go find the old episodes because they are so good. And and Rafe, I always give him his flowers. I'm surprised I haven't done it yet. Uh, probably because I didn't want to, you know, incorporate in the middle of like, you know, well, you know, when he was doing her with the device. By the way, Rafe's a wonderful guy and a wonderful host. I want to, you know, try, and, you know, you want, you want. It's it's cool. So you want to try and have it in the right area, but <laughs> the association there is scary. Yeah, let, let's not do that, you know, gluttony. By the way, Rave Great well night. you no. you are always
0: a wonderful guest to have on I uh, I love talking movies with you and I can't wait to see what you're going to pick next after the uh <laughs> diversity of those three films that you've done so far
1: <laughs> yeah I, again in all honesty though check out Rafe on his podcast it is incredible yo this one have not seen this go back and, and listen to the episodes with all kinds of characters there's some some great great episodes. Uh, movies you've heard of, I go through and I look at the movies. I'm like, what is that? Like, that? So I have to go find that. I literally have not seen this. So, uh, but yeah, again, thank you so much. You are the the best in the business, sir. I cannot wait to listen to this. And uh, thank you so much.
0: Oh, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. And actually, I owe Joe an apology. Here at the end, uh, if you were paying attention during the pop quiz, you'll notice that Joe was not doing so well on it. But he did get one of the questions right, and I did not ring the bell for him when he got his answer right. So, Joe... That right there is for you. My apologies for not giving you the ding when you got a question right. But that does it for this week. You can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about Seven, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. Please, I'd love to line up some more guests. You can find me at Town Hess. that's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, on Twitter and Letterboxed, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, where at Have Not Seen This Podcast. Or email me at havenotseenthis at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including the next episode. I wish to present you with a proposition. You want me to kill me, brother? I want you to kill your brother. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you enjoy this podcast, I invite you to check out my other one with Drew Meyer. Uh, it's called Never Say Die, and each episode we look at a movie and talk not only about the film, but how to gamify it for your role-playing game. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Joe McDonald for providing this week's conversation. Until next time, I'm Rave Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other.